My experience with Hope uh, happened to be at a uh, Giant Eagle store in Stelzer Road where we do one of our pickups. And uh, I happened to be doing the pickup that day and I walked into the back and I had the shirt on and this lady was visiting the, the woman who's in charge of the distribution area back there. And uh, she saw my shirt and she said, are you from Victory Ministries? And I said, I sure am. And she said, I just want you to know, you people changed my life. Here at the eye clinic at Center of Hope, I am able to just be reminded time and time again of what kind of hope we have um, able to remind people of. So one story that I'm reminded of is a patient who I saw um, earlier today, and she was here from out of the country. She was referred to us pretty randomly, um, just got a job, doesn't really have much else other than that, no health care here, doesn't speak English. One of my favorite things about the Center of Hope here in Whitehall is the tremendous opportunity that it gives to new immigrant families who are just starting out and really trying to make ends meet in a new country. One lady came down the hall and was just looking so burdened down, so heavy, and I got her checked into the computer. She, there were two adults in the family, five children. She looked like she was the grandma. And when I got her all checked in, I said, oh, how can I pray for you today? And she said, well, first of all, is there any way we could get some furniture? Um, I have great empathy um, for them because I was an immigrant myself. Um, there was a family that came in uh, last month from Chile. They have eight people living in their home and they've only been here six months and they were really struggling to make ends meet. I said, how is that possible? And she expressed her uh, experience with us. She had come for groceries. Uh, but uh, at that time in her life, it was a really difficult time. She was going through, a, a, um, not a divorce at the time, but a very disruptive marriage. And she had just experienced news that she was, had stage four cancer. Um, and we were able to see her in the eye clinic here kind of for her first eval. She needed surgery in the past and has been in a lot of eye pain because of it, which has just really caused a lot of hardship in her life. Um, and so today we were able to connect her with a surgeon through a, through a special referral process. And we were able to get her the surgery hopefully that she needs. And I took her name and number and passed that, told her I would pass that along uh, to a source that we have who could maybe help her with some furniture. And then I began to pray with her. And after I prayed, um, I noticed there were tears in her eyes and I gave her a big hug. Got her linked up with uh, counseling. She didn't even expect to, to want counseling, but she went through a counseling and it just really helped her to get through this difficult time. And uh, she was expressing that it was that experience that saved her life. They came in very nervous and I think they couldn't speak English very well and they were, were worried about, about looking like they weren't succeeding in this new country. And it was my joy to be able to sit across from them and see uh, hope grow in them as they realized that the person that was praying for them was also an immigrant. Um, when she walked in just hoping for a little bit of eye drops and something to ease the pain, currently we were able to offer her hope of actual curing her disease and her disease process um, because of that. So um, we're very excited when we get to meet neighbors who we can kind of offer a bigger hope for them, um, not only of this world, but also an, an eternal hope too, and try and reflect that to them as well.
kind of held her for a, a couple of seconds longer than I normally would and I said that was a God hug with skin on it and she looked up at me and she said I know it was I felt it and she came through the door one way and went out the door another way there was hope that she could make it and God was going to intervene in her Good morning. Well, that is uh, kind of a little bit of a taste of what we do. And uh, you have an invitation to visit and be part of uh, anything that, you know, we're doing, reaching out. We're gonna, you're going to know more about what we're doing as I, as I move through my message this morning. And um, I, think, I think I would be remiss. I... I just am kind of taken back because when I was a little bit younger man, um, back in the 80s, I, I preached here. Actually, many, I, I preached in this church pretty many times, actually. But I remember the first time, it was a, it was a series on evangelism that uh, uh, Scott and Linda invited me to do on Sunday nights. And it was about four or five Sunday nights. And, and uh, it was one of the... One of the early times I was coming out in churches and beginning to share with people about sharing their faith and, and did that right here and then was asked back many times over the years. And it's just, it's just special to be back here. There's a heritage here. And maybe if you're younger or if you're new, you, you may or may not know that. But this particular building was founded or built in 1860. Now, if you're not real good with history, that's one year before the Civil War. So there's a lot of, there's just a lot of God events that have taken place in this house, and I just am excited to be back here. So thank you for having me, uh, Pastor Adam, uh, absolutely. The, um, I always like to dive in and, and, and just kind of point out a couple of basic things, but I'm a man on a mission, and my mission is when I get to heaven, I want to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. I live for that drive that I want to hear Jesus say that. If he said anything else like, well, you're allowed in, but <laughs> wow, <laughs> you barely made it. <laughs> But the second part, and I mean, I, I'm really serious about that. This is real. The spiritual realm is real. And there are angelic beings, and there are demonic beings, and there is an invisible God, and there is a devil, and there's the Word of God, and there's all this truth, and all these unseen realms, they're real. And they're made more real when we kind of come to the end of a life with one of our loved ones or someone we know. And, you know, heaven always seems just a little bit closer to me when I am part of somebody going there. So the second part of my mission is uh, I want to help as many others do the same thing. I want to help as many others get ready to hear those words. And... How do you do that? Well, 
one way is you got to find out what's important to God and make it important to you. Um, I think that probably goes without saying that that's how you get to know someone. Uh, for instance, I'll pull out my phone. If you wanted to get to know me somewhere along the line, we have to talk about fishing. And somewhere along the line, you have to ask to see the 20-pound salmon I caught last year in Lake Michigan. If you do that, we're going to be talking, and you're going to get to know me because it's something that, you know, I like to do. I asked Adam, I said, what do you like to do? I said, you like to fish? He's like, eh. So I'm not going to really talk to Adam a whole lot about the salmon and bass fishing and technique, but he does like to build things. He's a motorhead. He likes to shoot trap and other, uh, other shooting type of activities. So if I want to connect with him on that kind of a hobby level, I'm going to need to get to know him. Well, it's the same with God. If you want to know God, you've got to find out what's important to him, and I can tell you right now what's important to God. Simply, people are important to God. Think about the price that he paid so we could be in his family. I mean, we almost need to just hit a pause button because I think sometimes we just move through this whole Christian life at a faster pace and just don't really take the time to absorb what did it mean for Jesus to die? What did it mean for God to place himself at the mercy of these humans to literally and brutally crucify him and then for him to get sucked into the belly of the earth and be tormented by uh, all the sins of the whole world. That's how much he loves people. I put it this way. God has a hopeless love affair going on with people. He's just hopelessly in love with people. Now, you and I, we see people for who they are, generally, and we struggle with that. God sees people for what they can be. He sees potential, and so he pursues them. Uh, I know that if I were God, I not only would have given up on a lot of people by now, millions and billions, I'd have given up on the whole planet and would have just popped it. But not God. He loves people. Now, when it comes to people, God is especially concerned about the poor. And I think it goes without saying that there's, there's value on every soul, rich or poor. Amen? I mean, there's value on every soul, rich or poor. But throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it's just passage after passage and doctrine after doctrine and command after command to take care of the poor. Uh, I'm just going to note a couple. Deuteronomy 24, the command from Moses to leave the gleanings of the weed in the field and don't go back and do what's called clean farming. There's a, when I was in college, there was, I, I was in the School of Natural Resources, but we were next to the agricultural school, and clean farming in the 70s was this popular thing of making the farm look almost like it was a, a well-trimmed, clean hospital. 
And what happened to the farmers is because they cleaned up all their fence rows, they no longer had pheasants, rabbits, or quail. So they kind of chucked that because there was value in having these bushy areas. Well, God said, leave the gleanings in the field. Leave the wheat for the poor and for the stranger and the people passing through. Leave some there for them. Isaiah 58, the familiar scriptures about, is this not the fast that I have chosen? To deal your bread to the hungry. Matthew 6, which the great commentator Matthew Henry from right around late 1600s, 1700s, 1700, he, he called Matthew 6 the three great duties of the Christian, which Matthew 6, I read almost, gosh, a week doesn't go by, sometimes a day doesn't go by, I don't read Matthew 6, because Matthew 6 is loaded from beginning to end. It's one of those chapters, there's so much there, but it starts out saying, when you give your alms or when you do charitable deeds, it says charitable deeds in the New King James, or when you pray, or when you fast. Jesus coupled three things together, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He elevated this ministry of helping people right up there with prayer and fasting. Really pretty, pretty lofty place for God to put it. In Galatians 2.10, Paul said, they only asked us to remember the poor. And then one of the book of James, Titus, the Gospels, and the book of Acts, Cover to cover, God's making provision for people who have a need. Now, my favorite Bible verse and the foundation of Victory Ministries, uh, my Bible verse about the poor, is Deuteronomy 15.11. It's our foundational scripture. The poor will never cease to be in the land. I command you, therefore, saying, open your hand freely to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in the land. We say it like this. People have needs. God wants to meet their needs and he wants to use all of us to do it. That is, that is the, the fundamental foundation of ministry to the poor in Deuteronomy 15. Why does God care so much about the poor to, to elevate them to this place? What is this group? Let me ask you a question. Since you asked that question, let me ask you a question. What does this group have in common? the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow. They have no voice. That group has no voice. They have no clout. They, they have no power. So God says, I'll be their champion, and I will be their voice. So he goes on to say in Psalm 72, 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, and the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy, and he will save their souls. And the Psalms, the Proverbs, are just loaded with helping other people. Now, like you, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was when Jesus Christ became my Lord and Savior. June the 25th, about 7 p.m., 1973. The second greatest thing that ever happened to me was when I decided I was going to be an everyday witness for Jesus. In other words, not just an occasional mentioning that I know something about Jesus. I mean doing what I can to influence others to know him. That actually led me into the ministry and into uh, the ministry as an evangelist. But there was a third piece added to it. And it was when I learned how much more could be done how many more could be won, and how many more could be helped. 
if I met a critical need at the same time that I was trying to tell somebody about Jesus. Hence, you wind up with Victory Ministries. A powerful combination, showing Jesus and sharing Jesus. Now, I don't know that I can share on this topic without sharing Proverbs 19.17. And uh, if you ever heard me preach before, you've heard me share this scripture. Uh, so indulge me. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who takes pity on a poor man, he lends to the Lord. And the Lord will repay him again for his good deed. But we have to unpack this a little bit because there's a whole lot more there than what it sounds like. That first, first off, this verse is written in Hebrew language. And those Hebrew words that say pity on the poor, that word pity, it means he who stoops down in kindness. He who stoops down in kindness lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him again for his good deed. Now, it's not a patronizing pat on the head like, you poor thing. It's not even a hand up which there's nothing wrong with a hand up, but it's identification. It's where, it's where we get down at an eye level with someone that's in great need, and we're, we put ourselves right at their level, and we say, I get it, I understand, we empathize, and if we have never been there and we can't truly empathize, we say, I still understand, and together, we're going to get up. That's what this verse is saying. He who stoops down in kindness to the poor lends to the Lord. There's no other place in Scripture I'm aware of where the Bible says and God says, you do something and I will be your debtor. I want you to soak this in. If you don't get anything else, get this. This is that important to God that God says, if you'll do this for me, I'll consider it alone. There's something about this that is extreme. God doesn't just do that. <laughs> God doesn't just casually say, I'll become your debtor. How in the world can God become your debtor? Cannot God just wave his hand and meet all the needs of the poor? Of course he can. But he's not chosen to do it that way, along with many other doctrines in Scripture. God has chosen to use what? The church. He's called the church to to actually occupy and implement the kingdom of God. So when it comes to helping the poor, we can't go, okay, God, it's time for you to move. God said, I've already moved. It's time for you to move. So I think about being, uh, you know, being a debtor to, that, that God says, I, I'm going to count this alone. And the best way I can, the best analogy I can use is if one of my children was on a mission trip and I was not able to be there, and then I went to the youth pastor. Who's your, do you have a youth pastor? Not yet. Okay, your future youth pastor, whoever he is. We'll call him John. We always use John. Sorry, John. And you just, you get with this young man and you say, you're going to be responsible for my daughters or my daughter. And I'm not going to be there. But things can happen. 
Go on a mission trip to Haiti. Things can happen, right? Things can happen in the DR. They can happen in China. They can happen in these places where we go on these mission trips. And I would need to look at this young man, and I would say, I'm expecting you to take care of her. I don't care what it costs or what you have to do. You're going to represent me while I'm gone, while I'm not going to be there. And I would be serious about it, right? I'm a dad. That's what God's doing. God's saying, I need you to do this because this is how I've designed it. I've designed my people to be the answer through Jesus Christ. So I need you to do it. He that takes pity on the poor, he lends to the Lord. So, if this is God's heart, it needs to be our heart. Loving the poor, caring for them, the needy, the widow, and the orphan. Praise God. So this is where, this is where our motives enter in. You know, a motive is just something that, uh, like a need or a desire, that moves you to act. A motive is something that moves you to do something else. So, human need is a motive. It'll, it's a motivator. One in four children in Ohio go to bed hungry. That's a motivator. It's a motivator for us at the Center of Hope. It's a motivator for me just as a person, because I care about people. When I hear about human trafficking and I hear about the dynamics of it, that's a motivator to do something. When I hear about any kind of a particular need, need has a certain amount of motivation. There are 6,700 unreached people groups still in the world. Last time I preached this, uh, or, or used this statistic, there were 6,900. We're making some progress with Cliff Bible Translators and others are reaching people groups with their own Bibles. The second powerful motivator is the Word of God. It's a powerful motivator. We, we are taught, rightfully so, that this is the guidebook. This is the manual for life, amen? This is our, this is our rules. This is the foundation. This is, this is what we use as our baseline, right? Okay, two or three of you. Is this the baseline? This is the baseline. I feel a lot of comfort in that. I mean, I feel a lot of comfort in knowing I know the baseline. I know the heart of God because I know this. Well, I can trust that, but it's one thing to reach out because there's a command in here, but it's another thing to reach out because of compassion. Now, Jesus in Scripture, it says, was moved with compassion many times. Moved with compassion. Moved by compassion. In Matthew 9.36, it says, He saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion because they were downcast and they were like sheep without a shepherd. It says in Matthew 14 that he saw a great multitude again and he was moved with compassion and he healed their sick. Matthew 20. <clears throat> 20. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight. What's interesting is this, this word here, um, being moved with compassion. When you think of compassion, what do you think of? You think of love. That's what you should think of, but it's more. Because the word used here for compassion and in this phrase of being moved with compassion is the word splancha. 
It's where we get our word spleen. And it means to be moved from your inward parts. Now, you may not know this, but you've experienced this before if you have spontaneously arisen to an occasion and come to someone's aid. In other words, you are faced with something, and it's big. And if you don't act, something bad's going to happen somewhere, either to you or to them, or to someone you love. So here's what you do. You say, I don't have the resources. I don't have a plan. I don't even know exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm going to act. I'm not going to wait for a committee uh, to figure out what it should look like. I'm springing into action because I have this unction in me, this compassion, this splancha that is causing me to reach out, jump out, walk out on the water for someone else. My personal belief is, is the reason it's called uh, there's another place in the King James where it's referred to as bowels of mercy. You ever read that in the King James, bowels of mercy? That's splancha. It's just that we didn't kind of connect it all together. I personally believe it's the agape love of God that activates in your spirit and it moves you to action. If it's not moving you to action, it's not splancha. If it's not moving you to action, it's not compassion. Compassion's not pity. I can pity you and walk on. Oh, that, that's really sad. And just walk on. But if I have biblical compassion, I'm going to do something. I'm going to act. And he says, Jesus, splancha with compassion. He was, he was moved. He, he was with splancha. Jesus always went to the throwaway people of society. <laughs> I mean... Jesus didn't play by the rules of the day, did he? Religious leaders were, like, always so upset with him. He didn't wash his hands right. He healed people on Sundays. He, uh, or Saturdays, Saturdays, I'm sorry, the Sabbath. He healed people on uh, Saturdays. He, um, he uh, went into the temple, and they, the money changers had turned the temple into this commerce place of business, and he turned their tables over, and he made a whip, and he ran them out. I mean, he wasn't popular among any of the religious leaders. But among the common people of the day, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor, the needy, the lepers, he was their champion. He went to all the throwaway people. And we need to have our eye open for the Folks that are being overlooked. Sometimes they're even close to us. I mean, sometimes the ones we need to touch are right next door, they're down the street, they're at the gym, they wait on you in a restaurant or whatever. But we need to be looking who are those people in our lives. They could be at the center of hope. You know, tomorrow. We'll have our clinical counseling from 10 in the morning till 7 at night. Then on Tuesday through Friday, we'll have all of our appointments for people coming for food and clothing and pastoral care. Uh, we'll have a cooking class on the uh, nutrition for the ladies on the first Tuesday. And then we have Bible study fellowship on Thursdays. And there's people coming all the time who need someone to just reach out and give them a word of hope. 
the way Jesus reached out to these castaways of society was that he connected people to people by building bridges to them. To be a successful Christian, in my opinion, you have to be a bridge builder. Information about Jesus is really important, but it's almost meaningless unless you're willing to build a bridge to the person you need to bring the information to, right? No one wants to be preached at. Think of the brothers or sisters or people in your life that you're close to that don't follow Jesus like you do. Do they want your information? <laughs> Mine don't. <laughs> what they want is for me to build a bridge, and they want me to listen, right? So that's what I can do. I can build a bridge and listen, and then the opportunity does come to share the information. You see, the way Jesus did this was that if a person was hungry, he fed them. If they were sick, he healed them. If they had a troubled mind, he calmed them. Think about the woman at the well. John 4, if you're not familiar with the story, it's one of the greatest accounts of all, in all the Bible. Jesus began to connect with this lady by talking about water. This water, he connected. He didn't kind of slide in and go, hey, would you know the Son of God if you met him? You know, I mean... He just said, can I have some water? And, of course, it started a conversation because she was a Samaritan woman. First off, she was a woman. And you didn't do that back. You just didn't have that kind of exchange with women. Um, animals like camels and certain other animals were, were actually valued more than women in that day. If you really want to know who liberated women, his name is Jesus Christ. It changed at Jesus Christ. From that point forward, there was a new paradigm for women. They were no longer viewed as a piece of property or something to be uh, uh, just used. So that's just, that's side, that's, that's my little, that's my political thing right there. I think I can say that in any setting. But with the woman at the well, he connected talking about water. He ends up leading her and her whole village into a relationship with God, starting by connecting, talking about water. And, of course, there are wonderful sermons wrapped up in that passage about all the cultural and social and gender and religious barriers that Jesus crossed to make that happen. At the Center of Hope, we build bridges with people by meeting center, uh, physical needs. We provide food. We have clothes. We have uh, diapers. We help people find jobs, formula. Uh, we meet any number of physical needs, and then it, after we are kind to people, it gives us an opportunity to meet spiritual needs. The old adage is so true. People don't care what you know until they know how much you care. Amen? I have a table in the back from the Center of Hope, and there's information there you can take. You can connect with us. Uh, we need lots of volunteers. We're in a, we're in a volunteer push in the month of April. I uh, would love to have any of you, many of you either have 
or currently volunteer with us now. But there's a, there's a letter back there, and it's a story. It was our last newsletter. And this story, and take one with you, this lady and her husband showed up about two weeks ago, came through our door, didn't have an appointment, and they were so disheveled and almost frantic. We've been to six other food pantries, and we have, uh, they weren't open. It wasn't like the food pantries did anything wrong. They just didn't come at the right time. They didn't fit that particular guideline, and we have guidelines too. But when they came in, we didn't have, we had a spot for them, and we said, if you'll come back in an hour, we can help you. Well, they brought back this letter when they came back and talked about how much they appreciated what we gave them. Uh, they said that the coming into their life at this terrible time that they were experiencing meant more than we could ever know. And they said, my son died on Christmas Eve in 2016, and I can't seem to get over it. What happened was, fooling around or whatever, he dropped a, a handgun and it went off, and it hit him in the head, and it killed him. But the part of the story I actually don't put in the newsletter, because th these folks had nothing. When, when the interview began in our little interview area, the woman had man's, men's clothes on. And finally she said, I'm so embarrassed to be here with, these, with my husband's clothes. But my sister stole everything. She stole my clothes. She stole our bedding. We have nothing. And so... When it came time for prayer, you would think she's going to want you to pray for material things that they need. And she says, she tells our worker, we can't get over this death. Well, here's what we ended up finding out. The son is accidentally killed. Of course, the authorities come, the police and everybody involved, make sure it's not a crime scene and all that. And then they take their son's body and they leave. But they don't clean up. And the dad cleaned up. And he said, I shouldn't have done that. They still live there. These, these are the stories no one hears about. Did you hear about that on Fox last night? I didn't hear about it. It probably didn't even make the news, or it was a blip. And I get it. I mean, you can't always make every piece of information surface to the, or, you know, come to the top. But to me, this is a headline. This is a family that has been traumatized while we were able to give them as much clothes as they could carry, a whole, a whole apartment packet. We have these packets which have dishes and everything to start, a, uh, start over again, and all the kinds of personal things and toiletries and paper towels. We, were, we just... We just stacked these people with so much stuff. They got appointments with a pastor so they could sit down. Not our clinical counseling, although they're available to that. This is pastoral counseling. This is where someone can pray with them and listen to them and minister to them. Because we don't believe what they're dealing with is necessarily related to mental illness, although there's a big trauma here, which our clinical counselor could help. But when they walked out the door, they were, they were almost out of tears. They couldn't cry any more tears. They had cried so much, been hugged so much. This, this is what Splancha does. This is what compassion does. It is reaching out and touching people where they are. Now, Monday, Tuesday, 
a different face. It'll be a different name. But we'll meet them again. They'll be back. They'll just look different. They'll be a different family. It may be a grandma. It may be we have any number of, of our neighbors that come for help that have many of them have lost sons to gun violence, grandsons to gun violence, great-grandsons to gun violence. So what do these people want to know about us? They just want to know we care. Because you saw from that tape and a few things I've said, we do a lot of things. I haven't even told you all the things that we do. But those are just things. What we really do is hope. We do hope. And if you ask our staff, what do you do down there? First thing they've been trained to say, but we've gotten it in their DNA, we do hope. We just do hope. Because that's what people really need. People need hope. Well, connecting to others to me is so key, but it's not rocket science. What do you need to do? You need to be willing to go. You need to be willing. I mean, if you really want to be used of God, you need to be willing to go. And in your daily prayer time, reaffirm, excuse me, reaffirm to God that you're available. God, I'm reporting for duty. If you don't have a regular morning devotion time, I really would encourage you, if you really want to know God, you need one. You just need time with him when it's quiet. Um, God is awake at 5 in the morning if you want to try it. Uh, and I realize that seems inhuman. But man, I have some of my most amazing times when everything's so quiet in the house with God. And get there and tell him, say, Lord, I'm available. What do you want me to do today? The second thing is you've got to love people where they are. Um, I was raised in a Baptist church in Cincinnati. And my mom was a devout Southern Baptist, strong Christian. But these were, these were, you know, these were the families and the women and whatever. They changed my diapers. I mean, I was there since I was nine months old. I grew up in this church. And typical Baptist church, 50 salvation sermons a year. The only time we didn't have a salvation sermon was Mother's Day and Father's Day. Otherwise, it was salvation. Um, you had to be dumb as a rock not to understand the, the plan of salvation if you were in that church. That was me. I didn't understand. And the other thing was, I didn't want it. Not then. So some of you know my testimony. I went the wrong way. I did the wrong things. By the time I was 19 years old, I had a... a, a, a I had bloomed into a drug and alcohol problem. I was, a, I was like a real hippie. You want to see like a, what a real hippie looks like? Well, I, I don't look like it anymore, but I did. Go back a bunch of years, like 45 years, and put some scraggly hair on, pair of overalls that I washed once a month, all that. Hitchhike coast to coast. There's Lloyd Craycroft. And uh, praise God, I met Jesus and Janice. <laughs> I mean, although I led her to the Lord, it's still, since then, she's been part of the refining process, let's say. So, so I'm in this Baptist church, and here's why I'm telling you this story. In my teenage, my late, later teenage years, it was becoming quite obvious I wasn't following Jesus. You know, I mean, the way I looked, and, you know, I don't, 
I'm not proud of this, but I would arrive there after being out carousing till three or four in the morning, and I still smelled of alcohol. You, you've either had kids like that or you've experienced that. And uh, here's what I realized later when I came to Christ. They just loved me. They never made me feel any different. And I would have been very wary of me. I would have been telling some usher, you know, watch him. I would have. He needed to be watched. I needed to be watched. I wouldn't have wanted me around any of, of the young ladies in the church. I would have just wanted to be so careful because I was full of all the wrong stuff. But what these guys do, they just loved me. They just loved me. They accepted me. A couple of them became like dads to me. Then when it came time to consider Jesus, I never, ever thought, well, I don't want to be like those guys. They never gave me an excuse not to want Jesus. In fact, it was like, I want to be like them. Even though I was in the middle of deep drug abuse and me and my buddies would talk about religious things, I always remembered them. The point is, love people where they are. Look at what they can be. Somebody saw me for what I could be and did not look at what I was. You know, and I actually pray for myself to be able to do that more because that doesn't come naturally to me. It's more than it did, but some people are wired that way, big mercy gifts, big loving hearts. I've got a little more of the prophetic in me, kind of like a little bit firmer. My kids aren't here. I have two of my grandchildren here. They won't experience that because they're my grandkids. But with my own children, yeah, I was strict. And we need to be able to love people where they are. Because if, they all, if, if all, all that come through our doors is everyone who's already sanitized and gone through our, our, uh, you know, our approval rating, then we're all just going to look the same and be the same. And we need some people that come through the doors that we kind of go, whoa, that was different. The second thing is after you show Jesus, share Jesus. Show Jesus first. It's the great commandment, right? Outreach or connecting by bridge building. That's what the great commandment is. Love God, love people. That's a great commandment. Jesus said the whole of the law and the prophets is based on that verse. Wow. The whole Old Testament is based on that verse. Love God, love people. The second is the Great Commission. It's, the Great Commission is sharing Jesus. It's, as a follower of Jesus, you tell people about Jesus so that they can follow him like you are. That's, that's what evangelism is. Uh, you know, there was a book out by, written by Steve Shogren from Cincinnati Vineyard years ago called Conspiracy of Kindness. And they taught, that, they, they taught that giving out water at places and corners and car washes, they called it servant evangelism. And um, just for clarification, that's not evangelism. It's outreach. It's like, I want to connect with you. You want a water? I got a water. Maybe later we can talk about the living water. That's evangelism. So you need both. You need the great commandment and the great commission. 
The, the final thing is, enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself growing and doing all these things with Jesus. Be on an adventure every day of who, you know, open a door for me, Lord. Show me where there's a need. Let me do something under the radar that nobody knows about. Let me be that, that source of healing or provision or let me help out. You find out something at your workplace and maybe, you know, sometimes $20 can change a person's life. Do you know that? They're so broke. They don't even have bus money or they don't have gas money. And you anonymously just slide a $20 bill their way. You might have, it, you know, ask the Holy Spirit, you might have just changed their life. Jesus wants us to be connecting and building bridges. So, Jesus was available to the Father to represent him when he walked through the villages and the cities. He always prayed ahead of time, which meant he was always led by the Spirit. And every encounter he had was saturated with love and acceptance, insight, and it all resulted in fruit because of the time Jesus spent. If he spent that much time with the Father, how much more do we? Jesus crossed every barrier to do what he needed to do. Social, racial, gender, religious, any barrier. Now we're coming in for a landing. According to my little phone here, I'm right on target. Can you imagine a world without bridges? Cities and towns, they'd be separated from each other. They would be ignorant of each other, and they might even be afraid of each other. Think of a Christian or a church that does, that does not or no longer builds bridges of love to the lost or responds to the needy in the community around them. In time, that Christian or that church will fade into isolation, self-congratulation, and finally, irrelevance. And I can think of no greater thing to grieve the heart of God than for his people to become so self-absorbed that they become irrelevant to the world for which Christ died. We can prevent that. Here's how Paul summed it up. He said, though I am free from all men, I've made myself the servant to all, that I might win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law that I might win those under the law. To those that were without the law, like the pagans, he says, I became as without the law, although I still observe law towards God, but that I might win those that were without the law. To the weak, I became weak. I love that. To the weak, he became weak. He didn't come in riding on the stallion. I'm here, I'm Paul, I've got all the goods. Somehow he identified he did, that, he did that stooping down in kindness. To the weak I became weak, that I, might be, that I might save the weak. Here's the scripture we most of us know, but if you don't, it's 1 Corinthians 9, 22. I have become all things to all men that I might save some. We're not going to save them all, but it might save some. This I do for the gospel's sake that I might be a partaker of it with you. So if we will make what is important to God important to us, we will fulfill the great commandment and 
the Great Commission. So it is my heart that together, to me, the way I feel in my heart is I'm sharing this word with you, but we're in this together. Everything I share with you, I take it for me, too. And those of you, you, you know, like the Donnells and the Kelsos and others, you know this has been my message now for 30 years. It's unless, if I'm new somewhere, it's always reaching out to the lost, and it's always reaching out to the poor. And if I come back a lot of times somewhere, sometimes I just get a little pastoral because I want to just be obedient to the Lord. But the, the word, though, that I'm sharing is this. We're in, we're in this together. There's a, this is awesome. What God is doing here is awesome. I, I love stories of redemption. And, and family church, you know, reviving this facility and this work in this spot is redemption. But what happens in here is going to be irrelevant if it doesn't go out there, right? I mean, I know that's Adam's heart. I know it's a lot of our hearts, but we have to really realize this has a purpose. This is for us to receive the Word of God, become built up, fellowship. It's an important part of being a Christian. But out there is really, really a, a very key part of being a Christian is what we do in the marketplace. So thank you for having me. It's, God bless you all. And uh, we'll be back here if you want to know more about the Center of Hope. And uh, take, all the, take all the literature you want. Contact us. Uh, you can come down and take a tour for a volunteer experience there too. So, there, um, Adam just re Adam just reminded me that I I got a um, I'm going to change gears. I, I received a prophetic word while we were praying and um, or worshiping, and sometimes God still gives messages. Okay. God, God gives a message, and we call them things like, you know, prophetic words or words, whatever, but he still gives messages. And I'm just going to share this and then, you know, leave it with you to, to just see if it fits or works for you. God's giving you a message. But as I was worshiping, I saw an Asian elephant in my, my spirit mind, spirit of my mind, and uh, Asian elephants can become over 10,000 pounds. And the way they train any elephant, but an Asian elephant, is they put a chain around a leg and they attach it to a stump that they cannot get away from. And they train that elephant that the only way that elephant can do anything is with the prodding of that little stick with that hook on it. I thought about that, what the Lord was saying to me, and I realized... The enemy, the enemy tries to convince us we're like that elephant, that we have no strength. That elephant doesn't know that he can crush that trainer. He could simply grab him with his trunk and throw him to the ground and crush him. But he doesn't know that. He believes that the trainer's in charge. Whatever the trainer prods him to do with that little hook, watch your, you know, watch your nature shows when the, when the, 
the, uh, in, especially in India, when they take those elephants, they take them through the jungles to do their tiger hunts and other things. These elephants obey with just that little hook. The enemy wants us to believe that that's how it goes. And my word to you is, if he's convinced you you're powerless, you can't get any further than that little chain on that stump, that you can only follow the promptings of what he's trained us to do with fear and anxiety and other negative things that wreak havoc in our lives, you can be free because you have the greater one in you. It's just that if this is a word, this is how, this is how it's, I think God wants me to interpret it to you. You've been convinced that the greater one does not live in you anymore, that the greater one is out there. And that's a lie. That's a total lie. I'm not saying breaking out of destructive patterns or any pattern is easy. It's not. Breaking out of any pattern is not easy. But it's all possible. It's all possible. Uh, even the secular psychologist and the self-help gurus say in 21 days you can break any habit. 21 days in that word, with God, I guarantee you, you'll be a new man or woman. So... That's the word that, that God gave me. Thank you. Can the worship team come forward? We're just going to close as we're, as we're here this morning. And I really appreciate uh, Pastor Lloyd taking the time to be here. You want to see the uh, Center of Hope if you, if you haven't yet. And um, I, I like that. We do hope. And uh, so here at Family Church, we do family. And, uh, and, and the whole reason is so that people can find peace and find hope. As we're closing with a song this morning, I just want you to uh, respond to this word this morning. And uh, so for God to speak that, that means that there is at least one person in this room that believes a lie that they cannot overcome something in their life today. And so what a shame if you would walk out without hope, without somebody agreeing with you in prayer over that this morning. And you could receive prayer for any number of things. If we could have our, our teams come forward this morning, a couple of our prayer teams would be available. I always say the smart people get prayer, and uh, that's been me for a thousand times, and I, I'm not ashamed of that. You want to have people agree with you over the things that are going on in your heart that the Lord has brought to the surface. Let's Let's stand and worship as we close our time together this morning.